You're listening to the Volleyball by Design podcast. Today, we are going to talk about the AVCA Coaches Convention. We're going to do a little wrap-up from some of my big takeaways from this convention, as well as the 2023 Women's National Championship. We're going to talk about some takeaways that uh, I observed during that match. So this is an episode you definitely don't want to miss. Stay tuned. Hi, I'm Coach Brian Singh, and after a number of years coaching competitive volleyball and as the head coach of the biggest college in Canada, I've become obsessed with helping coaches improve their knowledge and skills of the game by teaching them how to coach efficiently and effectively to ultimately reach their volleyball goals. I created the Volleyball by Design podcast to give you simple, actionable, step-by-step strategies so you can get clarity and apply what you learn right away. This is the Volleyball by Design podcast. What's up, ladies and gentlemen? Welcome to episode 183 of the Volleyball by Design podcast. How is everyone doing out there today? Another week of volleyball in the books. We're, we're getting close to the end of the year, the end of 2023, and I'm excited to come to you guys with another episode of the Volleyball by Design podcast. I am currently in my hotel room in Tampa, Florida. Fortunately, the weather hasn't really been that nice over the last few days. It's been rainy and cloudy, um, but nevertheless, I uh, had an amazing... Actually, before we get into that, welcome to my new listeners. Welcome to the podcast. My name is Coach Brian Singh, and I'm the host of the podcast. And to my regular listeners, as always, thank you so much for tuning in, where the goal, just like every other episode, is to deliver valuable, tangible, step-by-step strategies that can take your game to the next level and ultimately help your team just take that next step to becoming better. And with today's episode, I really want to break down, well, break down a little bit of the national championship game. There's there's not a lot to talk about, but I'll tell you some of the takeaways that I took. And then just the overall AVCA convention, you know, how it went. I want to talk about some of the takeaways that I took. And, you know, you, know, you, you can always learn from these conventions, regardless of, you know, your experience in the game. There's always a different outlook on things. Coaches are doing different things. And it also is, it's nice to confirm that what you're doing in your gym is going along the right path so so yeah it was great Uh, but before we get into that uh, i just want to say for everyone that attended my session uh my 245 session saturday thank you so much for coming out you know the feedback was was amazing I, i met a ton of coaches and it was it was really nice to be able to get that that feedback and the room was was packed actually i was really surprised last year when i did my session uh it was, it was a good show up but not like this year this year the room was like standing room only so that was um that meant a lot and and the feedback that i was given really really resonated with me and, uh, and i appreciate that and to every coach that actually came up and had a conversation with me um there's so there's too many to name you guys know who you are you know i really appreciate that and i uh, it was nice to take a picture with you guys and uh, just get a chance to connect because, you know, I'm I'm in Toronto, I'm in Canada, and there's not a lot of, there, I mean, I, I obviously get to connect with coaches here, but for a lot of the coaches that listen to the podcast that are in DVA, I don't really get a chance to meet you in person, so this is a great chance. And and for all the DVA members that I got a chance to connect with, oh, you guys are amazing. Just thank you so much. And I, there's so many names, and I don't want to forget any names, but I mean, we had, we, I ran into Michelle, Stacy, you know, Coach Neil. 
uh, Bruno, Japan's assistant uh, national team coach, former assistant national team coach, ran into Bruno. It was nice there. Uh, they, you know what? I'm gonna I, I, I gotta stop because I'm gonna forget names. So I'm so I'm sorry. Uh, I don't want to list all the names, but you guys know who you are. Listen, I appreciate you guys coming up and uh, and talking to me and just getting a chance to meet, meet you guys in person. And the feedback was great. Um, and yeah, and then uh, the session went well. I, we talked about my uh, my step-by-step guide to creating an offense, and I told everyone before the session, I was like, hey, you guys are going to be taking notes, so be ready. And uh, and yeah, luckily, you know, everyone had their pen and paper or iPad or phone or whatever, and a lot, a lot of coaches were showing me how many notes they took. So that was really nice uh, to see. Um, but yeah, so let's let's dive into let's let's dive into the national championship first because um, I, today was the championship and I'm literally in my hotel room not too long after the game. And for those of you that got a chance to watch it, you know it's funny. We go back to the to the old cliche: the best serving and passing team wins. You know, and even in the national championship, the highest level of volleyball in this country, that was the result. It was the best serving and passing team that won. And unfortunately, you know, for Nebraska, I know I know Nebraska is super young. I know they have a ton of players that are in their first and second year, and a lot of a lot of young athletes. And they they just couldn't side out. They couldn't pass the ball. And Texas, for that matter, their strategy was simple: keep the ball away from the lib and serve the left sides. That was it. Keep the like that libero on Nebraska. And I'm sorry, I I'm, I don't know names as as well, but Nebraska's libero was bored out of her mind. I, she must have passed in three sets no more than, what, five, maybe seven to ten balls, maybe? every. And I, I would even argue probably closer to five. Um, I'd have to watch film and look at it, but she was bored. Um, they were serving left sides, all left, left, right, and center. And unfortunately, the left sides had a tough time passing tonight. And it was just no heavy spinners, just good, solid float right to the seam, right to, uh, or, or the player for that matter. And the amount of uh, aces, I, I mean, I don't know if that's a record, but the amount of aces in the second and third set and out-of-system balls, man, Le- Nebraska setter was running all over the place trying to trying to push a good ball. And she did a great job at trying. It's just, you know, when, when you're out-of-system and you're getting served off the court, it's really, really tough to win a national championship. So, that you know what like out of all the takeaways that I have and I, I was writing some things down during the match it it came down to to the serving and passing like that was it and it was it was too bad and you know what's funny they were they were targeting like they were targeting number 27 on Nebraska really heavy all throughout the match in rotation two well you you guys I don't know what you guys call it but when the setter was in position two Nebraska ran a two-person passing rotation so they took 27 out and they just had the lib and the other backcourt player passing and you could you could tell I I I, I mean I, I didn't do the scouting report but I could tell within the first five points of the match that Texas was going after 27 and they were going after the other left side as well and unfortunately it just didn't didn't work out well uh, they had they I'm guessing and I haven't followed Nebraska throughout the season but I'm guessing they had one of their worst passing matches or pass yeah passing matches of the season because it, it wasn't good in the second set they sh- they hit a negative. And I would say the third set, they probably were close to hitting a negative, too. I didn't look at the stats or the third set, but second set, they were hitting a negative. So, you know, it's it's too bad. In the in the second set, they went on – Texas went on an 11-0 run uh, just, just on the serving line. So, you know, there there is something to take away there. You know, I actually thought 
Texas's coach made a crucial mistake in the first set. I thought it was going to cost him. It never ended up costing him. But uh, Texas coach was really, really uh, fired up on the sideline. And oops. Yeah, sorry. It was giving it to the R2. Like, he was he was yelling at the R2. I'm, I'm not really sure what he was yelling at, but he had a yellow previously. And um, I, it was something about the net or something about the line. And it was it was like 21, 22. It was so close. Uh, head coach got a red card and tied it at 22. So that was a crucial red card because I thought Nebraska had the momentum and they were going to take uh, they're going to take that that set. But again, they couldn't pass unfortunately, and and Texas ended up winning that set and then obviously winning the next two. The other thing I I, I thought, and again, this is like I mean. Nebraska is a fantastic team, and and you know they're great. They made it to the national finals. Like you can't you can't really say anything bad about that that team because they're well coached. They got good players. It's just the they had a tough tough national final. But some of the things that I noticed was timeout management. Uh, that was one thing that I was I wasn't sure what the Nebraska head coach was doing. And again, I, I'm not in his brain. I don't know what he was thinking. But there was I mean the score was 19-10 at one point, and he had both his timeouts left and I, I wasn't sure what his strategy was, but to not call a timeout in the national finals when you're down 1910, uh, I, I, again, I'm not really sure what he was thinking there, but that, that might've been a, his, his timeout management, you know, there was a point where it was like 12, seven as well. And no timeout called Texas had momentum and they just ran away with it. So again, obviously it's not the head coach's fault that they lost, but Maybe some timeout management might have been beneficial. The, the minute Texas went on a run, he could st- call a timeout, try to stop momentum early, give their players a chance to regroup uh, instead of letting you know an 11-0 run happen in a national finals. That's, that's that's tough. So the only and the other the only other thing I, I would say was you know setter decisions on Nebraska. Uh, again, tough. Tough match, but unfortunately there were some crucial setting decisions that costed them. I think they uh, they had a sub, a number eleven subbed it in the second set um, to help them pass when they were when they were going on that big run. And I'm guessing number eleven is not a primary offensive option. And first insist the ball goes to eleven, and eleven gets stuff blocked at the net. And then they get another insistent ball, which again they weren't getting many insistent balls, and then the setter dumped. And then the setter got dug up. It was really, really easy or blocked. One of the two. I can't remember. It was dug up or blocked, but they didn't score. And it was like I'm, I'm, I was watching. I'm like, oh, they've, you guys have been out of system so many times. The, the one time or the second time you get an in-system ball, you're gonna dump. Like that, that might have not been the best option. You want to really get your offense involved because even then, like, hit it to your, because the offense was fine. Like Nebraska's offense was fantastic when they were in system and they were. Uh, getting balls up to their pins, they were working it. It was, it was really working for them. Um, the only thing that sucked was they weren't really getting many in-system balls. And then when they did, it just, they couldn't, They it was like, oh, wow, it's my first in-system ball and it's five or six points. And um, and then they couldn't convert. So, again, offensively, this is they didn't lose because of their offense. If anyone watched the game, like, go back and watch, they didn't lose because of their offense. They, they just lost because they couldn't pass the ball. And that's just that's unfortunate. Like it is what it is. So that's pretty much my my big, yeah, my big things there. Uh, 
it still it still baffles me every time I watch these women's finals. Uh, is the the head coaches are always sitting back on the chair and the and the assistant coaches are up uh, talking to the players on the sideline and doing things. And then you know the assistant coaches probably doing a great job. Like no, get me wrong, but. Uh, it's interesting how the head coaches just kind of sit back. And there were moments where they were getting involved and stuff like that. But just to sit back and watch a national finals, I don't know how you do it. That's that's a tough one for me. I I, ha- I have to be involved. You know, I got to be on the sideline. Uh, it, it's it's one thing in the men's game that's I've never that, that doesn't exist in the men's game. I guess it's just uh, in the women's game. This is one of the things. So anyways, those are my big takeaways. Uh, so let's just recap the takeaways there. We had. Uh, Texas coach getting that red card at a, at a really crucial moment, tying the game up with his red card because then Nebraska got that point because of the red card, and it tied it at 22-22, but then they just they couldn't finish because they couldn't pass. And then, the, and then the passing, yeah, the passing was the name of the game. The Texas served consistently, good tough float, ne- Nebraska couldn't pass. That's, that's literally the game right there. A um, couple setting decisions could have gone a little bit different, and then the timeout management time of management would have was was rough uh, i would have um i would have i would have wanted to see a little bit more timeouts called earlier than than later and and that's unfortunate so there it is and again and, and if you're a nebraska fan or anyone listening to this this is not a knock on nebraska at all you know I, this is just a, a, an unbiased observation that i made when i was on the you know on the baseline looking at it and just some things that i think you know could have could have gone in a, in a different direction in terms of tactically, like Nebraska, just we we couldn't I, we couldn't assess any tactical decision making or anything because there wasn't an opportunity to. They were just they couldn't pass, and that was it. You know, and that was that's the match. So, anyways, I've been talking for a long time about that, but that's that that's <clears throat> excuse me, that's uh, some things we can take away from there. All right, let's move to to some coaching. Let's talk about some of the big takeaways at the convention that I gathered this year. Um, so. My session was on offense, and I and I did a, a step-by-step guide to you know creating a a, simpli- a simplistic offensive system for your team that caters to your team. I actually attended some other offensive sessions, and a little bit a little bit different than than my philosophy. A lot of offenses that I that I that coaches were talking about were very 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 complex. So again, and this is the great thing about being a coach: you got to do what you believe in and what is 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 in the best interest of your team and yourself. And I may disagree with the way you do it, and that's okay. That's why we got the sport. That's why we have different coaches. But there were a lot of different. There were a lot of coaches who were running these really complicated offenses. You know, like we're talking. I mean, so many different type of routes and so many different type of options. And for me, looking at those at these presentations and sitting back, I I disagree. I think that offense is is simple in our game. It doesn't need to be complicated. And you look at all, even today, look at the national finals today when the offense, when, when teams were in system, their offense was very simple. It was create the one-on-one and what's the best way to create the one-on-one. You didn't see a lot of players running all these different combos and different play calls and different things like that. It was simple volleyball. It comes down to making an offense that's simple. And a lot of these coaches were presenting on things that were so complicated uh, that I had a hard time grasping it. I can only imagine how the players are grasping it. But hey, if it works for them, all the power to them. I believe that offense is simple, and there are four hitting lanes in our game that you need to jam, 
And mind you, you can obviously change routes here and there, no problem, depending on what ball is given to you. But we have to teach our players a simple offense because at the end of the day, it's about creating the one-on-one or the one-on-nothing. And if your if your players have a one-on-one opportunity, they should score because the game is designed for offense to win. You hear me say it all the time. So really simplify offense. That's that's kind of the name of the game for me. You got to keep your offense simple. I I um some some other big takeaways was was net play. That was that seemed to be another common theme this weekend. Is really putting an emphasis on playing at the net. And that is something that I believe after this weekend, I believe I don't put enough emphasis on. You know, my uh, you know, we had Spraw, you guys know my, my my good friend and mentor. He did a lot of playing the ball at the net and and sh- and understanding the importance of playing the ball at the net. So, one of the cool drills that he he showed, I I'm going to try my gym is this, I think he calls it 400s or four hundreds or four on four or three on three. Anyways, here's what it is. Basically, you take the court and you divide it into two thirds. So take the court, two thirds of the court is is not playable. So you're playing on like a third of the court. Okay. So it's a very small court. So imagine a volleyball net is nine meters long, right? You're playing in three meters of the court and then you're not going all the way to the baseline. You're going to like maybe, I don't know, like 13 feet, I don't know, 16 feet, maybe. So you're not going all the way to the baseline. You're going just three feet behind the attack line. So that's your court. So a third of the court in width and then um, like maybe 13 feet deep. And it's four on four. And all you're doing is playing at the net. And it was really interesting to see the guys go at it and play at the net because then you get an opportunity. And everyone's front court, by the way. You can have you can have backward players, but everyone's allowed to play front court, play at the net. And since the boundaries are so small, it really forces you to start using your hands at the net and getting a lot of swipes and push balls and throws and and you know and going off the block and all these different great things. You can't swing really. You can swing hard off hands, sure, um, but you can't really try to hit seam and swing seam because it's going to go out. So it was really unique and cool, and I thought that that's an interesting way of getting the players to be more comfortable than that because it forces them to get under the ball and, and go after it. So something that I'll be trying to implement more in our gym is is uh, really playing the net more, getting comfortable playing the net, and I think that will ultimately help our offense because there's obviously the offense is played at the net, which you know, but not only being able to swing but use the block use your hands dump the like you know dump the ball push throw all that fun stuff getting your athletes comfortable with that is really good and you can do that at any age group it doesn't really matter what it is like i mean you you're we're talking about 12 you all at 18 you just getting used to putting the hands in the net uh, another thing that I, I I thought was interesting, and again, this is the same Sprout presentation, was he um, he broke down passing into three principles. Uh, the first one was taking the ball on the side. Like he doesn't care what side you pick, but he wants you to take the ball on the side of your body. He does not want you taking it in front. Now I've been preaching this for years too, uh, but what we, the the only difference is that he puts an emphasis on the fact that even if it's coming right to you, he wants you creating space and opening up and getting the ball taken from your side. Like that's it. He wants to make sure that you you get it you get it on the side. The second principle was he wants you to complete the pass. So making sure that your hands stay together and they don't um, they don't separate. And then the third thing was what was I think it was this, I think his third thing was separation, keeping the keeping your platform away from your body. 
You want to have good separation so that you can create your angles and you don't get jammed. Um, so those are the three things. So so take the ball on the side, and by default, you're going to create separation and then finish your finish your platform. So make sure that you don't separate. Keep your platform together through the whole pass. And I'm sure many of you know that. Uh, the only thing was that really, really emphasis on putting your uh, putting your platform to the side of your body and picking a side, whatever side you know you you want to pick. That's that's the side you are. Okay. Um, yeah, those were his those were his three things. Let's see what else we got here. So I talked about the drills. Uh, oh, you know what was the other interesting too is um playing. And again, this is some coaches might think this is crazy, but we ha- one thing that uh, Spross said was we have to train for the points that you know don't happen very often, but could be the reason you lose a point. So for example, a ball that it that we have to chase. So let's say there's a ball that's ricocheted off the block or off the hands or whatever, and we have to chase. And instead of getting our hand on the ball, maybe we have to get our foot on the ball and kick it up back and play. So he actually practices this. He'll have his players chase balls and kick the ball back in play. Another interesting one was when the ball goes off your hands and down on your side or off your hands and off the net on your side. Well, instead of trying, since your hands are already on the block, instead of trying to bring your hands down and scoop the ball back up, maybe you got to kick it back up. And he's like, that's a play that could happen. And do your players, have your players done that before? Or are they going to do that for the first time in a game? I thought that was interesting. You know, so practicing that is um is, is something that maybe you, you might want to consider doing in your gym practicing those random points that you know you ha- that happen um now i mean the devil's advocate in me is saying well am i gonna take practice time away for spending stuff that maybe happened once in a match maybe once maybe twice in a match that's your that's your argument Okay, do you take practice time away for when you got to be working on the stuff that will 100% sure occur in a match to practice those two things? You know, he would argue yes, and other coaches may argue no, but that's something for you as a coach to decide how much time you want to dedicate to that. Okay. Um, let's move on to Oh, actually, one other thing that I thought was interesting, and this is something that I'm going to change. So this is something I picked up when I've always I've always said ball setter ball hitter. That's been my cue for blocking. So my blocking cues have been ball, setter, ball, hitter. And what the, if you don't know what that means, all that means is it's the eye sequencing that a blocker needs to do when he's he or she's blocking a ball. So the first sequence is ball, so identifying where the ball is passed from. Then we have to find the setter. Then we have to identify where the ball is being set to, and then we have to find the hitter. So ball, setter, ball, hitter. However, I'm going to now change that to ball setter hitter ball setter so i'm throwing in an extra one in there okay so ball oh actually i lied ball hitter setter ball hitter right i'm gonna say that one more time in case i confuse you so we're gonna have ball hitter setter ball hitter and the reason why i'm changing that is because so many times our blockers have no idea where their hitters are because what they're, if they're doing the, the sequence that I meant that we always been teaching is ball, setter, ball, hitter, that means when the ball passed up to the setter, they have to find the setter. When they find the setter, they have to then see where the ball is being set to, and then they have to find the hitter. Well, that might be too late to find the hitter after the ball is set. If you're running a fast offense or if you're a middle blocker 
and you're waiting for the setter to set before you find your hitter, that might not be a good thing because your your hitters are going to be nowhere near you. So when that ball is passed, you have to find your hitter right away. So ball, hitter. We want to find our hitter right away. Then you can find out where the setter is. Then you can track the ball and then get back on your hitter. So I'm going to, I've now switched that terminology because the, the truth is we do that anyways. Like once that ball is passed to the setter, our, our blockers have to find their hitters. I just never included that in the eye sequencing piece. It's just a natural movement. So, but now I want to be intentional with it. So when I teach my players going forward, it's going to be ball, hitter, setter, ball, hitter. So they have to find their hitter first. Okay. So that's a little, a little change there for some eye sequencing, um, like uh, from for eye sequencing, just the wording switches there. Um, and now let's talk about fifth set strategies. So this was another session I attended, and I've done an episode on five setters. And the truth is, in this session, there wasn't really anything different or groundbreaking that I haven't already talked about in my five set strategies, because most of the stuff that he showed was just research, like research on how many teams uh, win in the five set versus like how many times they attack the ball. And, and some of the things that he found was just that majority of the time, and again, this is not b- groundbreaking, the team that wins the fifth set is normally the team that has more kills or more attacks and less errors. Yeah, well, no kidding. Of course, that's what it is. So the team that has more attacks and less errors are the ones that generally win. Okay. And then he had some researchers, because some, he interviewed a lot of different players and coaches and some of the things that athletes were saying about five setters. And it I, again, it's nothing groundbreaking. Basically, he would say stuff like, you know, in the fifth set, do you want your coach to be involved? Yeah, of course you want your coach to be involved. Do you want your coach to be um, motivational and, and encouraging you? And all the answers were yes, yes, yes. It, it was just stuff that you already probably do. Uh, the one takeaway was, you know, as a coach, you you got to you got to regulate your emotions, if you will. Like you cannot show your frustration in the fifth set or in or in the match entirely, because if you f- show your frustration. It doesn't encourage your players, and they want to see a coach on the sideline that's calm or or motivational. Or, or if you are showing your emotions, it's more toward more it's more towards to motivate your players instead of bring them down with any negative uh, type of emotions. So that's that was that. But the one thing that I'm pro- I, I took away for fifth set strategies that I don't do that I might do now is actually practice having five sets in practice so it's not enough just to make the score go to 15 we have to treat it like five set game so you know switch at eight you know call timeouts take breaks when a team goes on a run you know have a timeout in there so they can gather their thoughts like actually treat it like the fifth set you know make them when they lose that make them run or not run but make them face that loss maybe they're done for practice the losing team's done for practice and the winning team can finish off the next 20 minutes of practice 50 minutes of practice and the other team has to watch like you know like little things just to make it feel more real now obviously no matter what you do in practice you're not going to be able to make it as real as the game but in any way possible make that fifth set as as close to as real as you possibly can so that's probably something that we're gonna we're gonna try doing um, okay let's talk about some out of system stuff so a lot of coaches spoke on out-of-system offense, and we, we, we've we now shifted in the last 10 years, you know, and I think I've talked about this before too, but out-of-system 
used to be, you know, one meter inside, one meter off the net. Like that's kind of what it used to be. Now we're finding that the more success is going inside the court, like well inside the court. Like we're talking four feet inside the court than just a meter in. And it was interesting. The Ohio State coach was talking about two, two of the attackers. And before he got the job, the out-of-system offense was high, you know, outside the court kind of. It wasn't really inside. It was more like, again, meter off, meter in. Not, not, not really too far. It was close to the antenna. And the hitting percentages of his players were in the, were the 100s. And then the minute he changed that out-of-system offense to inside the court, and he went four feet in, two feet off. So that's pretty damn tight. Like two feet off is pretty tight, which, which again, is the, is the way the game is going. Like even Sprott was arguing we, he might even want the set on top of the tape. Because the hitters have the advantage, the momentum's in the hitter, the blockers are just putting up a wall, and you, as a hitter, choose what you do with the ball. So he said that the hitters, like the Ohio State's hitters, improved from 100 to, to well in the 200s, even the 300s, once they move the out-of-system ball inside. And I, and I thought that was interesting, and it, and it shows that that's, that's true, that's where the game's going, providing you train it right. So some of the cues were like four feet in, um, four feet in, two feet off. That's where you want the location. And you want the ball to be set 25 to 30 feet in the air, right? Really, really high. And I like that, like high so that we can go in and actually attack the ball. And an interesting point to note is if you were able to hit the ball off the block on an out-of-system ball, that is actually a higher percentage shot than if you were to hit the ball on an out-of-system ball and not have it touch the block. So if you don't touch the block and you swing – chances are your percentage will be lower than if you hit the block when when you're swinging on an out-of-system ball. Okay, so it seemed like there was a much higher percentage when it goes off the block. So that's an interesting point to note that I might not have mentioned before. So you want to use the hands on an out-of-system ball. Um, the other thing, too, that they were uh, training with the out-of-system attacking is to be patient. Like they really, really want their attackers to be patient. And it was interesting to watch, like before he even said anything, when we were looking at the out-of-system ball, we noticed that the attackers started their approach even before the setter set the ball. And that's a problem. On out-of-system, you're not approaching before the setter touches the ball. You have to wait. So so then he, he showed us and he, then he obviously made the point. And your first step as an attacker needs to be after the setter releases the ball because you're you're not going to know where the ball is going because your first step has to be in the direction of the ball so that's something to pay attention to coaches when you're looking at your out of system attacking make sure your players are not moving they're not taking their first step until the setter has the ball out of their hands because we're not going to be able to approach efficiently with it and the last two steps need to be relatively under the ball. Like you don't want the ball to be behind you. You want it to be in front of you, maybe a little bit more in front of you, not all, not completely under the ball, but it has to be there so you have the advantage so you can go up because the blockers can't touch the ball in your space. They can't. So when you go after the ball, you choose what to do with that ball, right? It's all on you. So the blockers cannot do that. So something to note. Okay, you have control of the ball, out of system hitting. Uh, oh, and the other thing is too, on an out of system attack, you're not approaching on you know outside the court like you would on a regular in system ball. So a lot of people would be like way outside, like wide to the court. You're not wide. You're pretty much right on that line because again, the ball is being set well inside the court, and that's how your approach angle is going to be. So something to think about.
Um, let's see what else. Yeah, that's pretty much out of system stuff that I think uh, was yeah was was pre- what, what, what I wanted to mention. Um, a couple of things too with six on six stuff that you can experiment with. So with the six on six, there's a lot of different ways that you can train different things. So one of the things that I thought was interesting was when they play six on six, they 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 really focus on what do they what are they working on with a six on six and how do we get more reps doing that. Okay, so for example, if you're working on out of system swinging, then make sure your first ball is down balled to the to the to the uh, to the setter. That way, you're ensuring that it's an out of system ball, and you can do your six on six and 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 so forth. But let's say you wanted to work on two different things. Well, I I would say go six on six, down ball to setter. Setter gives you an out of system ball, and you play it out. And then the next ball that comes in right away could be again something you're working on. Maybe you're working on you know, when the setter comes out of four or the setter comes out at three, like whatever, whatever the case is, you can, you can kind of overlap the things that you're working on. And yeah, so that, so you can overlap certain things that you potentially want to work on, which can happen on a six on six game. Um, what I really like too is first ball offense. So six on six. Okay. The, one of the, one of the requirements is you terminate on first ball. And if you don't terminate on first ball, the ball is dead and the other team gets a chance to terminate. So you keep doing, so you do that, like free ball in, free ball out, terminate on first ball. If you terminate on first ball, then a serve comes into the team that terminated. If they get that point, then they get one, one point to the score. They get one big point. I thought that was kind of interesting. So it's really, you don't get a chance to score unless you terminate on the first ball. That's really cool. Working on your, your, your uh, you know, your free ball uh, or your first ball offense. I like that. So terminate on first ball, get the opportunity to score. If you don't terminate, you don't get the opportunity to score. All right, let's see what else I have here. Um, uh, yeah, so the, another thing I had here that I saw a lot of coaches do or, or in terms of six on six, and we do this too. You might've heard me talk about this, but offense versus defense. I really, really love offense versus defense because it gets you a chance to run through so much offensive sequencing that you might want to do. So offense versus defense. Okay. The ball goes into the offense. The offense swings. If the defense digs the ball, the second ball is a free ball that goes over. Or if they dig and they get a touch, third ball is a free ball that goes over. So the defensive team is not attacking. They're just sending the free ball back over. And what you can do is you can work on a bunch of different uh, routes that you might want to work on. So let's say, for example, your focus is just backcourt offense, hypothetically, okay? Well, down ball, well, ball comes in, you set pipe, pipe swings, they dig, they send a free ball over. Well, the next one could be C ball. And then you keep going pipe C ball so you can continuously work on whatever offense you need to work on. And we this is something we actually do in our gym too, if we're really trying to get our pipe and C-ball option working. Well, instead of doing just hitting lines, that's not really game-like, we'll throw in some six-on-six six because then now we get some defense involved and we get some blocking. And by default, there's going to be out of system as well. Because if, let's say, for example, uh, we swing and they block the ball or it's a bad set we have to recycle, well, guess what? There's your out of system opportunity again. So it's a really, offense versus defense is such a fantastic drill for our offense to get multiple reps. And it's multiple game reps. And that's the one thing I like about it. Multiple game reps is you can't go wrong with that. 
Okay. All right. I do want to mention one more thing, and I, I should have mentioned this earlier. This is regarding the national championship again. I forgot to mention the the warm up. So one of the things, and this is something I preach all the time, and it's just so nice to actually see it live in a national championship game. I believe that warm up is important. Okay, warm up and warming up like a team and making sure you guys are all in sync. You know, I think there's value to that. And the reason I bring this up is because you can see with both teams, when both teams came out, they came out as a team. They came out as a team, and they're all wearing the same warm-up shirt. One player is not in a different shirt because they feel special. Everyone's in the same shirt. They're all in unison. It was so beautiful to watch. Like, you know, Nebraska, for example, would all come out, and then they would all come out, and they would go straight to the court, and then they would start their warm-up together. There was not one person out, one person in. I can't tell you the amount of times that I've gone to tournaments, both you know, youth, high school, even college, and you'll see sometimes players are on the court. Like, right when they enter the court, half the players are on the court, half the players aren't. They're, they're slowly making their way to the court. And then when sometimes when you see them warm up, you may see another player getting taped while while the team is being warmed, while the team's getting warmed up. Or sometimes you might see a, a player in a different shirt. And I'm just like, guys, the, it, you're not. This doesn't look like a team. And when when and it's, I know it's something you might think it's petty or it's like something small, but I'm telling you, there is. There is rationale of when you guys do things like a team together from the beginning, before that first whistle is blown. When you are in sync and you look like a team, act like a team, feel like a team, you're going to play like a team. And I've, I've been doing this for years, and I can tell you, there is a direct correlation with performance to the, a proper warm-up like this. Unless, of course, you know, yeah, you might lose a game. I'm not talking about losing game to a better team. I'm talking about your performance as a team. You will perform better. When you have a proper warm-up, a structured warm-up that has everybody in sync, even, even the, the silly thing like a player wearing a different shirt than the rest of the team, that factors into it, okay? Because that player is not special. You are a team. So it's really important that that's, that, 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 that that's an emphasis. You have to emphasize that to your team. You should look like a team. You should be that. And you know, I, I'm even myself... Even myself, I, I get so mad, and it's happened a few times this season where, you know, our guys will be warming up, and there's there's one player that forgot to get taped on time. And I'm like, that is ridiculous. And the team, they're they going to pay for that because that's not that's not right. You need to be, all of you need to be on the court warming up at the same time. And no, there's no no excuses. So anyways, that's um that's my piece. Let's just do a quick recap. I've been going on for a while here. But the um, the beginning we talked about the Nebraska game, the Nebraska and uh, and Texas game, and again the big takeaway there was serving and passing. I mean, you guys heard me say it multiple times. The best serving and passing team won, and unfortunately, well, depending on who you're cheering for, I just I feel bad for Nebraska because it because of that it didn't even give them a chance to compete. And the scores will will tell you alone. What was it? 25-11 in the third set, 25-18 in the second set. I mean, that's that that's not even close. Like there was no competition in the finals. So, you know, I I wish that they were able to execute those fundamentals to at least give them a shot to compete for a national championship. So that that's unfortunate they didn't get to do that. But again, they're young, so they'll they have they'll have an opportunity to be back, I hope. And yeah, that's it. Serving and passing, that was the name of the game. A little bit of setting decisions and then timeout management that I mentioned, I thought could have been a little bit better. Um, we talked about the passing, so Spraw's passing. We want to make sure that we, we're taking the ball to a side. Yeah, you really put an emphasis on that. Making sure you're completing the pass so with a finished platform. Don't break your platform. And then keeping your head steady. 
and I actually, I probably didn't mention that. I, I talked about separation. He really wants you to keep your head still. And he's been saying that for years because if your head is moving up and down, then your your ability to track the ball diminishes. You want to keep your head steady so you can track the ball a lot easier. We talked about some drills. So we talked about the four-on-four net play with two-thirds of the court. I thought that was really cool to force the, the the ability to play at the net and things like that. We talked about kicking the ball and all these different scenarios and how, you know, how that might work. If, if you are a coach who wants to train the one or two points that could happen in a match, that is your call, but that's something that um, he was talking about. Uh, ball, oh, it's another one. Ball hitter, setter, ball hitter. They're a little, a little different than ball setter, ball hitter, which is what I've been preaching for the last 17 years. I'm going to change that now. You're not going to hear me say that anymore. You're going to hear me say ball hitter, setter, ball hitter. Now, remember, if you, again, you may say, well, what about the setter? What if the setter dumps the ball? Well, guess what? If you are a left side player and you're front court with the setter, then that is your hitter. So when I say ball hitter, that's going to be the person you have to identify. So it just so happens that that's a setter as well. So no matter whether you are the um, whoever the when the setter is front row, you that's your responsibility as a left side blocker because you're taking out that setter. So that's your hitter in that case. So ball hitter, setter, ball hitter. That's that's the cue. Uh, we talked about fifths at strategy. So again, most of the stuff I already talked about. The only thing that was different that I might implement a little more is uh, making sure that we actually try to play a real game up to 15, like an actual, you know, real thing. Maybe do the coin toss, switch it a, do everything to make it like a real game. Um, add a system, okay, 25 to 30 feet in the air, four feet in the court, two feet off the court. Sorry, two feet off the net, sorry. So four feet in the court, two feet off the net. We want it high and tight so we can go in there, get right under the ball, make a play on it, um, try to go off hands. That's the higher percentage shot when it's out of system. And your first step should not be until the setter releases. And really watch your players to make sure that they're doing that. They're releasing after the setter contacts the ball. Um, yeah, different offensive situations. So six on six, uh, first ball kill. I like that one. First ball kill, then you get an opportunity to score a big point. So you got to kill the ball. You got to turn it on the first ball. And I'm going to start implementing a little more of that too in our practice. Um, uh, offense versus defense. We talked about that. That's a really good opportunity to get you to work on some of the things you want to work on. Um, and yeah, that is pretty much it. So what are we at here? Oh, wow, we're at almost 40 minutes here or a little more than 40 minutes. If, um, if you, if you have found anything useful or you, you want to reach out to me, have any questions, um, Instagram is the best spot for me, uh, for anyone that's listening to this, that attended the AVCA convention. And if you did attend my session, and you have any questions on the session or you want to reach out to me, like I said, I'm, I'm here. Uh, my Instagram is the best way to get a hold of me um, because uh, it's just, I don't know, it's just easier. You can send me a DM. Uh, I'll, I'll monitor my DMs over the next week or so just in case some of them go into my hidden request. So anyone that was at the convention that wants to get in touch with me, I'm, I'm an open book. Feel free to reach out. And for those of you that um, got a chance to get some of my templates, you know, reach out to me if you need any questions. If you have any questions on that, uh, I have no problem to answer anything and help you guys out. And for the rest of you, thank you so much for tuning in to another episode. I will see you guys next week. What's next week? Next week, uh, we're getting close to Christmas Eve now, right? So uh, I should still be good for, like I said, I'll, I'm, I'm going to try to do my best to get you guys episodes every week. So hopefully I might have to maybe maybe record one before um, before you break for, uh, for the holiday break. Okay, that's it for me. Thank you so much, guys. I'll see you next week on another episode of the Volleyball by Design podcast. Take care. All right, cue the music. Look, 
Are you at the stage you want to be in your volleyball journey? How would it feel to get clarity on your training and instead of taking months to get better, you could improve in weeks, if not days? When I was a young coach and player, I felt this way all the time. The truth is, after I got some great advice on how to be efficient, my learning curve grew exponentially. Let me show you how to be more efficient and effective in this game. I invite you to check out CoachBTraining.com for more resources that you can use to take your game to the next level. I look forward to helping you reach your volleyball goals.